I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ask nearly any general education teacher about teaching students with disabilities. There is one typical response. I didn't go to school to work with those kids. In 2017, the Heckinger Report published a story about how some educators feel unprepared to teach in classrooms where students with and without disabilities learn together. Part of the story focused on Mary, a teacher from Bloomfield, New Jersey. When she was first starting out in the classroom, she had no idea how to handle students who had learning disabilities or challenging behavior. Over time, Mary developed strategies like how to talk students down from the ledge who were struggling with big emotions. She also learned how to keep students with disabilities on task by chunking larger pieces of information into smaller ones. Although she earned a bachelor's degree and a teaching credential in math, no one taught her these strategies. She was left to figure it out on her own. I wanted to know more about this story, so I invited Jackie Mater, the journalist from the Heckinger Report who wrote the article, to talk to me about why this issue was so important to her. I'm Jackie Mater. I write for the Heckinger Report, which is a nonprofit education news outlet. Coming from my own uh, teacher prep program, knowing how little I was prepared to work with students with disabilities, and then I, my first classroom job was as a special education teacher. I taught in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, and so once I entered the classroom, I was, I was doing a mix of um, a pull out and push in inclusion. And a lot of the other teachers I worked with, you know, had this mentality of it's those are your kids and the rest of the kids are my kids. Um, and so when I, I stopped teaching and I uh, became a journalist, I, I always remembered that and thought about that. So when I was covering teacher preparation, I really wanted to do a story on how well general ed teachers are prepared um, to work with students with disabilities since by that time, by the time I uh, went into journalism and 
you know, graduated from a journalism program and was actually a few years into my journalism career, I felt like inclusion was becoming um, more common. So I um, actually started my research for that article by finding a teacher prep program that was trying to do this um, really well, that was trying to prepare all of their teachers to um, teach in an inclusive setting. Um, so I, I found two programs that were doing a really good job of that. One was um, Montclair in uh, New Jersey, and that was who I focused on for this article. I visited a school district that was working with Montclair and was pulling some of their graduates um, into their schools um, in an attempt to not only make more inclusive classrooms, but have teachers who could better teach all the students in their classrooms. Um, and it was really interesting talking to the teachers when I visited their inclusive classrooms because they were very open about the fact that, you know, and these are teachers who weren't part of this um, kind of dream teacher prep program and didn't come in prepared. When I was talking to these teachers, they were saying, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really know how to teach students with disabilities. We didn't cover that in teacher prep or I had one class called you know, special ed 101, and a lot of times it covered some of the major disabilities, how it might manifest itself in the classroom, but it didn't really, you know, go into detail in terms of how to teach in an inclusive setting, um, or even how how different, or how the same disability can manifest itself in different ways. Um, so these teachers were really upfront about the fact that they wish they were better prepared because they got in the classrooms and they had no idea what to do when met with different student needs, especially with disabilities um, that impacted classroom management. So if there were students with behavioral disabilities, teachers said they especially struggled um, to work with those students. And they frankly really wished their teacher preparation programs had prepared them more. You know, what do you feel is the, is the national trend toward the prep programs? I haven't heard as much about teacher prep programs trying to change and become more inclusive. I've heard more about schools um, or school districts kind of saying, all right, we're going to make this a priority and um, we're going to try to move, you know, toward inclusion, partly because in many cases they're legally required to and they just haven't been um, for many reasons. Um, but also, Yes, there is a lot of data, I feel like more recent data, too, that shows inclusive or inclusion is beneficial for all students. And I feel like that is starting to really get into the classrooms and get into the schools and, and administrators and teachers are hearing about that faster than teacher prep programs are changing. What has been the strategy for, for school districts and, and schools that, that want to move, you know, for whatever reason, whether it's legal or not, um, um, what has been their strategy to move their, you know, teachers toward more inclusive practices? So the most recent article I did about a district kind of, you know, taking the reins and saying they're going to do this on their own was a story I wrote about inclusive practices in public preschool programs at a district in Arizona. Um, so for that district, it was, um, they ramped up their special education department, so they, you know, hired more people who could kind of consult with the different schools and make sure that, um, you know, they had some experts available to help these schools 
really run um, great inclusive preschool classrooms that were inclusive. Um, they also really shifted funding around so they could pay for for more teachers to be able to staff these classrooms. Um, and yeah, they they I mean really just made it a priority. When I talked to them, I kept saying, "What are you doing? Like, how are you doing this?" And they just kept saying, "We've made this a priority. We have." educated all of our teachers on how important this is. We've shared the data on how important inclusion is for all students. Um, we know that outcomes are better for students with disabilities. We've educated our teachers. We've educated our parents. We've, yeah, shifted money around. Um, so it's, it's really just, you know, going full force into it and saying we're going to do this and getting people on board and getting the funding and going for it. That seems to be the best strategy. So something that my colleague and I came across, we did a big investigation on um, high school graduation rates for students with disabilities. And so we, you know, got to hear a lot of stories. I think we interviewed, gosh, 45 or 50 students and families across the country. And we got to hear these stories of students' entire education careers. And you know, starting in kindergarten when they started school, what happened and when they got their IEP. And um, a lot of times, you know, a lot of the same themes came up. And something we heard all the time was there seemed to be this this very low expectation um, for students with disabilities to the point where I, I called to talk to a principal to kind of get, a, you know, his point of view um, for one of these students who had graduated from his school. And this student had, um, I believe, dyslexia and maybe another um, disability, but nothing that would preclude her from, you know, being in general education classes. And she had been pulled out and put in um, a, a special elective class just for students with disabilities where they did things like, you know, built cars, um, out of milk containers and just random things like that. And I asked why she was immediately put in this class because she, as soon as she got to the high school, that class was scheduled for her. And he said, well, all of our students with disabilities go in that class. And if we see that class isn't, you know, doesn't work for them or that they don't need that class, then we take them out. And that just seems so backwards to us that the expectation was so low, it was more like, we're going to put you in this lower class, and when you prove you don't need to be in here, then we'll pull you out and put you with your peers, but first you need to prove it, versus we're going to put you with your peers first, and then if it's not working, we'll try to support you, and if it's still not working, then we'll figure something out. You know, like that that mindset was really concerning, and we came across that all the time. And I feel like that mindset is unfortunately really prevalent and really gets in the way of inclusion if there's just this automatic low expectation, you know, whether principals or teachers realize it or not, um, it's often there and that's really getting in the way. You can find more from the Heckinger Report at heckingerreport.org and follow Jackie on Twitter at Jackie Mater. Today on the podcast, I interview Christina Samuels of Education Week, 
We discuss Ed Week's special report called Special Education Practice and Pitfalls, which takes a look at the shortage of special education teachers, how co-teaching strategies enhance the effectiveness of education for all students, and how to encourage parents and students to advocate for their needs. After a short break, my interview with Christina Samuels. Hi, this is Christina Samuels, and you're listening to the Think Inclusive Podcast. Hi, Christina. Uh, Thanks for being on the podcast today. Thank you for inviting me. Um. So you are uh, an associate editor with EdWeek, is that correct? That's it. Yep, I've been covering special education since 2004. That that's quite a long time. <laughs> yes, it feels it feels like a long time sometimes. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I started classroom teaching in 2003, so I've been working for a public school system for 15 years and you've been working on the on on covering education for about that long so i i understand how long that feels (laughs) yes you know one of my first stories was um in fact the first story that i wrote when i started in education week was uh, talking about the reauthorization of idea i didn't know at that time that we might not see another reauthorization in several more years, but that was, uh, that was where I started. So, um, you know, quite a lot has happened since then, and unfortunately some things have stayed the same since then, but, uh, but it's, it's been a great beat to cover. Uh, excellent. And I know this isn't one of our pre, um, one of the questions I, I asked you, but what, what is your connection to education? Why did you, why did you want to cover this uh, uh, particular beat? Sure. Well, I actually started off covering education um, in the Washington Post. I was a uh, school beat reporter, so I covered Prince William County Schools uh, in uh, Northern Virginia. I actually started um, when the previous reporter went on a maternity leave. They needed somebody to take over the beat, and I was available, and so I started covering education then and just have kept up with education since then. Uh, it's just been fascinating. When I was in Northern Virginia, there was a lot of things happening around standards-based education. The school district was diversifying rapidly, uh, and so there was never any lack of stories. And so I just considered education to be a great beat. I didn't cover special education specifically. Then I covered just anything that was happening in that school district. But when I came over to Education Week, they were needing a special education reporter. And so I um, launched into that specialty. And uh, and I also cover early childhood education as well. And there's actually kind of an interesting overlap between special education and early childhood, especially when you're talking about things like um, early intervention services and early identification. In Education Week's publication, um, they have an article, or you all have an article about the shortage of special educators. Um, what do you think um, was the primary reason 
why we have a shortage of special educators in the United States. Yeah, um, yeah. Thanks for asking about this. This was actually part, as as you know, of a of a special report that we did that came out earlier in December, where we were looking at a lot of elements about special education. And one of the one of the stories that I focused on specifically was about the special education teacher shortage. And one of the things that I learned from delving into this is that this shortage has been around probably since as long as there has been special education as a as a concept and as a legal entity. There's just always been a shortage of people who are um, interested in pursuing what is, you know, a pretty, uh, you know, what can, what can be a pretty challenging, of course, a very rewarding, but a pretty challenging um, job when there are other positions in education as well. I think that, you know, there's a couple of things that are happening, or at least that people identified. One is that there's just an overall shortage of people who are interested in going into teaching. This is, you know, primarily driven by women who are having other or who are choosing other career paths. So you already have that going on. And then you have special education as a field itself has just been more challenging to fill because people don't know much about what that means. One of the things that I mentioned in the story is that uh, there were some university folks who say that when they do get students who are interested in majoring in special education or, or pursuing that outside of college, they ask them, like, what got you into this? And one of the things that kind of comes through is that they had a personal experience either with a family member or something that happened in their school or some kind of personal connection to people uh, with disabilities and that led them into the teaching profession. I wonder whether we're seeing a lot of that now. What You would think so with you know inclusion being an educational practice that's been around for some time, but I still think that there's probably a limited number of people who have that personal experience that drives them into uh, into special education. So that can be it. But honestly, there are a variety of different things that are going on. But I think that, you know, how people feel about special education in general, maybe a lack of information or ignorance about people with disabilities, maybe a sense that this is really hard and it has a lot of paperwork and all of, the, all of those things are being are, are true, um, you know, are all probably contributing to this shortage that we found. Do you think it makes it even more difficult that we do have these two separate systems? Yeah, I I definitely wonder and I mean this is this is certainly a question for people who are, you know, who are decision makers, but it's one thing that I kind of wonder about is whether we need to give general education teachers more training in at least how to differentiate differentiate instruction for kids who might be on the mild to moderate end of the disability spectrum because these kids are in the general education classroom. They are with the general education teachers, and general education teachers cannot realistically say this is this has got to be somebody else's job. It's their job. And I think they know that, but I think that there's, you know, maybe some fear and trepidation about what that may mean. I think that if people felt like more confident in their training, that wouldn't be as worrisome to them. But I mean, the bottom line is there's not enough special education teachers for all of the kids with disabilities out there. So, and, but they still need, uh, 
a free and appropriate public education. So what are you going to do? I, I feel like this might be a question for those who are in the teacher training programs to really grapple with is what do we want our general education teachers uh, to know? Um, you know, because I don't know, or at least I don't perceive at the, at the moment like something coming on the horizon that's going to close that gap in the number of special education teachers we have versus the number of special education teachers we need. It just seems like the problem has persisted for so long, it's unlikely that something is going to come to really make a big difference there. So I think you need to kind of just rethink the whole question. Who is it who should be responsible for providing um, that education and what do they need to know? Um, it's a challenging one. It's, it's really challenging. In your in your research, did you see any trends uh, from schools or school districts on how they're using special educators, whether it's more of a support role or a direct instruction role with co-teaching? Uh, was there any trend that you saw? You know, this is uh, something that we've covered. Is There's definitely a trend toward co-teaching and, and team teaching, some that is, uh, you know, extraordinarily successful partnerships that the professionals really, uh, you know, work through quite well, and some of it that's just not done as well. Uh, you know, I think that school leaders may look at co-teaching as a way to provide the differentiated instruction that's required in a student's IEP, but they really have to be thoughtful about this, thoughtful in giving teachers enough time to plan together, to work together, to think of things like whose name is on the report card, where does the teacher sit, I mean, who is responsible, who interacts with parents. You know, these kinds of things, um, you know, need to be thought through rather thoughtfully. Um, I, anyway, all that to say that I do see this larger trend toward co-teaching, but I don't want to, you know, I think that anybody who is in a co-teaching partnership would probably say this is not just some sort of slam dunk solution. That that requires its own level of um, of expertise on, on both the, uh, on the professional side to, to do well. Are you surprised or um, alarmed that some school districts and schools do not offer co-teaching services? So I wouldn't be, I, I guess, I, you know, one thing I can say from doing this for a while, I'm not surprised by too much, but I will say that I, for people who, who are not doing this, I do wonder, like, so what are they doing? Um, you know, I, this is the one thing that I think is, is um, definitely worth further stories, and I hope to get a chance to do these further stories. It's like, okay, it's one thing to say there's, there's the shortage. We know about the shortage. So what are you doing? The students are there. They have a legal entitlement to certain um, educational supports and accommodations. What's happening? Like, who's doing that? Is that getting done? And I mean, I think that that's really the question. Um, one thing that we didn't explore in this particular special report but that we saw was that there has been a real rise in the number of paraprofessionals uh, in school districts, and so what does that mean? I can't tell you right now, um, but I think that that is really a question uh, that needs to be asked. What does it mean to have a decline in special education teachers and a, you know, sort of market increase in the number of paraprofessionals? 
um, what are they doing? What kind of training are they getting? What kind, what kind of services are they providing in the classroom? You know, lots of questions to be answered there, I think. So, Christina, I loved how EdWeek included student and family voices in uh, this publication and uh, that it wasn't just from the educator's perspective or even from the researcher's perspective. Uh, what do you think we can learn from students and families that educators serve? Yeah, I really was so happy that we got a chance to include those students as well. And what was really interesting about this, and this will just be kind of a, a side note, is what a lot of those students had just submitted things to, to us on their own. So I think that, you know, one thing to, to think about is that sometimes we are – is not aware or maybe don't understand that, that kids sometimes have a really sophisticated understanding of their own needs and their own challenges and what and their and what supports and what supports they need it's you know i wouldn't say of course this is not the same for a child at every age and a child with every disability you know there there's certainly as many different sort of interactions as you would have students but i think that one thing that came across with the teens that we had in this was that they really felt like sometimes they weren't being listened to uh, they felt like they were trying to say what they need and were not really being heard. So I think, you know, what I take away from that is like a couple of things. One is that I think that, you know, to the greatest extent possible that we can teach kids how to advocate for themselves, sometimes they really just might not have the language to describe what it is that they're going through. These kids that we had in this special report were particularly eloquent uh, and, you know, able to sort of describe their situations really well. Other students may need a little help with that, but that's okay because I think that that kind of self-advocacy is going to be something that's going to serve them so well uh, when they are uh, adults. I mean, just being able to just kind of identify what they need to be successful and to be able to go after it. So that's one thing is, is you know, helping with the self-advocacy. The other thing I think is, is probably just listening to them more. And um, I think that some students felt even, and this is very interesting, I mean, even, uh, you know, we had a student who uh, had a visual impairment. And so that's a, a disability that you would think that everybody kind of gets. They kind of understand it. It's hard for her to see. But yet she was still felt like people didn't really quite get what it was that she needed in terms of understanding. You cannot, you know, gesture toward her. You cannot, you know, sort of make a face or, you know, kind of do this nonverbal communication um, she can't see it, so she can't respond to it. And when she wasn't responding to it, people were thinking that she had, like, you know, problems with communication. That wasn't her problem. Her problem was that she couldn't really see what it was that was going on. So, you know, I think that, that teaching kids how to speak up for themselves and listening to them when they do are the things that I took away from, from the student contributors to this uh, special report. Christina, what do you think is the biggest barrier to inclusion for students with disabilities? Ooh, that's a big question. I, you know, I wouldn't presume, um, you know, as I'm, as I'm not an educator, uh, I wouldn't presume to say that I could speak to some of the, the biggest 
barriers. But I mean, I think that one that just sort of continually comes up is maybe just sort of a lack of understanding of what students can do. And, you know, I got to say, sometimes this does not come from some kind of bad place. It's easy to say that, uh, oh, teachers just don't believe in these kids, and that's and, and not only is that incorrect, uh, I think that there's many teachers who, who are very adept at, at understanding what kids need, but I think that sometimes there can be a desire to say, gosh, is, is this too hard for this? person? Are we making their life hard? Is this, is this kid going to leave school with a regular diploma? If not, you know, why are we going through, uh, you know, this exercise of inclusive education and, and all of these things? And let me, let me be clear, I hear this from parents as well. So this is not to say that, you know, this is just something that is all on the teacher, all on the administrators or something like that. I just think that there needs to be real conversations about what do we think this, this kid can do? What does this kid want to do? What are our dreams, our hopes, our goals? And then, you know, to be able to provide that is, um, is you know, it's, it's, it's easy for me to sit and say, but I, I think that those are probably some of the barriers that, that come, come up for me, at least in conversations with others, is like barriers that are driven by expectations or a lack of them. If you would like to hear the entire unedited recording of my interview with Jackie Mater from the Heckinger Report or Christina Samuels from Education Week, consider becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash thinkinclusivepodcast. Follow the Think Inclusive podcast on the web at thinkinclusive.us. Tell us what you thought of the podcast via Twitter at inclusive underscore pod or find us on Facebook or Instagram. You can also subscribe to the Think Inclusive podcast via Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or on the Anchor app. We love to know that you're listening. Also, a reminder that you can support the Think Inclusive podcast via Patreon or Anchor.fm with a monthly contribution so that we can continue to bring you in-depth interviews with thought leaders in inclusive education and community advocacy. On that note, Thank you to Patreons Donna L, Kathleen T, and Veronica E for their continued support of the podcast, as well as our new $1 a month Patreons. Every little bit helps. Also, a special shout out to my producer and love of my life, Brianna. You will always be my Alex. Thanks to my boys, you know who you are, for your feedback and suggestions. It is greatly appreciated. It's not much of a tale, but I'm sort of attached to it next time on the Think Inclusive podcast. Usually, my experience with a student with intellectual disabilities in a, in a gen ed classroom, the teachers don't understand how it can look different for that student. But they want somehow to make it the same as everybody else. Thanks for your time and attention. See you next time. Of Think Inclusive LLC. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods 
all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.